We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truth behind it. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. The final line, the justice that was ultimately delivered, feels a lot different in this time, Don, because in our last episode, justice was not delivered. It it felt like a... Look at my it, hair standing on end right now. You, Literally so, standing on you're end. You're so goosebumpy. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, last but it time... Wasn't. Last time, it was uh, partially served, you know? It, it was partially served. That's what I think. But not all the way served. The 50-50 oh, murders. Yeah, Justice so, only 50% served. <laughs> there you go. He got his 50%. But we should tell you that if you've not listened to episode four, you need to go back to... You need to stop episode five and go back to episode four. It's true. It's Th- going gonna, gonna to help you. Trust, this, is, this is part two of two. So this episode, this is episode five. It's part two of two. It's our first two-parter. Before we indulge in everything, Don, what what are people saying about Midwest murder? Lovely things. Thank you all so much for doing that. So quick, quick reminder. Please please, rate and review. Please, it means the world, and it actually helps us on iTunes. Become yes, on iTunes, it becomes. um, It helps us become a. uh, trending podcast and share yeah. and share it, man. If you guys are having a good yeah. time with it, share it. Yeah. But those reviews are important. Yes. We appreciate you. We love you. And wh- wh- who's saying what? Greatly appreciating it. So by I'm going to just spell this one: S C A R R O M. Scarm. 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 Yeah, that sounds good. We love you. Uh, thank you for this. A necessary guilty pleasure. This podcast hits all the sweet spots and attracts all types of listeners. It's creepy, captivating, and the hosts are remarkable at recreating these stories that put the listener. Right in the middle of it. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Scarum, you just made my day. I know. And you know what? I've never been happier to be called creepy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So When creepy is a compliment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, have, we have one more, too, that I want to read. Uh, great show from B-U-R-L-U-A. Berlua. I totally enjoy listening to these podcasts. They do really good research and have a way of totally immersing you in the story, always leaving you eagerly awaiting the next episode. Well, Berlua, you must be dying for this one <laughs> because know. we left everybody on a cliffhanger last time, Don. We did. And I've, I've, I've been on the edge of my seat. I, I, mm-hmm. I have too. And when we knew we'd be able to do that, we, it was exciting. So quick shout out and thank you, of course, to CJ Wynn, who helped write the intro of our show along with Eric uh, Michael Anderson, who wrote the intro music. Awesome work. He recorded that along with doctors Eric and Diana Anderson. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Nomad Design House, a, a really awesome, quirky, easy to work with graphic designer whose sole purpose in in life is to get you a timeless design and amazing work that you love. Uh, She did our logo for Midwest Murder. She also did the logo for Myth America. Super talented. Nomad Design House. Find them on Facebook for all your graphic design needs. And now part two. First two-parter. So Don, although this story reaches its conclusion in 1993, as we know, it began back in 1985. Now, the investigation covering this part takes place from 86 to 1992. So some of the highlights from this sacred period of time, one of my favorites, Nirvana kills hair metal. <laughs> I think that you kills hair metal. Okay. It's, it's just, Hair metal is slain with a broadsword. That broadsword is, in fact, Nirvana and its grunge music. I think that also pretty relevant during this time and perhaps having a hand in usurping 
hair metal from the throne, the guns and roses of the, uh, of the world, was doc- Dr. Dre's The Chronic brings oh. the world of rap music to new heights. Man, don't, don't even get me started. I want a show just on that. Right? Se- sequels are as big as ever with follow-ups to Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, and Indiana Jones. We have the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. Pretty cool stuff. Operation Desert Storm. George W. Bush takes Reagan's place as president and, of course, is later supplanted no, no. after just nope. one term. George H. W. Well, Bush. George H. W., excuse yes. me. George yep. H. W. W. Tidio. wasn't there yet. W. wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. H. W. takes Reagan's place and is, thank you, and is later supplanted after just one term by Bill Clinton. One of the few one-term presidents. Yes, yes. Um, and so that, that, that brings us to where we are in the story. As we know, Calvin Newham was convicted of murder. But then about a year later, after Kevin Austin had made his initial appearance in court, Noonan refused to testify, and the murder charges against Kevin Austin were dropped. We have a little more from Tom Slorby, who will explain to us the difficult choice. He had them both charged, and then when Kevin um, turned on us, we don't have a case that can get to the jury uh, without him. And I mean that we couldn't even get it to the jury. And I wasn't willing, I, mean, I was 99.99% sure that's what would have to happen. And if it didn't, it's because the judge committed error. <laughs> okay. Sure. And so that's why I dismissed on Austin, you know, uh, live to fight another day. And I did kind of think, is he going to be willing to sit there on two life consecutive sentences and keep his mouth shut? This is how stupid Kevin Austin was. I don't know. His lawyers were both disbarred eventually. And of course, I don't know what advice they gave to Kevin Austin. But I told Kevin through his lawyers, or at least I told his lawyers this, I said, give me a burglary gone bad. And I will charge your guy with a B felony, maximum 10 years in prison, no minimum mandatory, and a burglary charge. And we're done. Well, he turned it down. So you again, I'm not, I'm not, I, I really question if his lawyers gave him good advice. You wanted Austin to testify against Noonan. Well, that, well, I don't even need it. I, I don't need anybody against Noonan. Right. His you, own story. Of course. Sure. But I wanted to get something. Just something. Right. Just, Just something, something on him. Austin. And they turned yeah, it down. Again, I was convinced he wasn't the trigger man besides. Sure. Wow. But his freedom was going to last only as long as Kelvin continued to refuse to cooperate. Now, how stupid was that to turn that down? I mean, that was some bad well, advice. Well, I'll tell you, I think this is the most they would have told him, because they weren't very good lawyers, by the mm-hmm. way. Well, they can't get you even to the jury without it. And he's pulled the plug on him. Right. So, yeah. hell, it turned out, well, you want to sleep with one eye open and watch your back for the rest of your life? That was pretty stupid. <laughs> Closing thoughts here, Tom. The, again, the decision then to not prosecute Austin, you, you obviously offered him a, a really great deal. Yep. Um, now, really, that's what he would have got charged with had there been evidence against him and no murder. Sure. So, uh, uh, really, um, what I what I would have to imagine that decision is yours to make in not pursuing the prosecution. How unpopular was that choice amongst everybody in the case, the families, and and the public? Do you do you feel like that impacted your um, well, election I, as state's I, attorney? I, no, I think it's a different case. It impacted me. Okay. Uh, the, I explained it to every cop involved in the case. I always did that, mm-hmm. sure. even on a traffic case, and to the Abernathy's. And they all they all indicated they understood it. Wow, good, okay. And you, you can tell, you get a taste for this eventually. Yeah. When you're explaining something to somebody, you you can you can tell that they're understanding it and they're you know they're they're, they're digesting this, et cetera, et cetera. Just by looking them in the eyes. I went on. Public TV, not public TV, but TV, et cetera, radio, and explained why we're doing it. I never got any negative feedback about that. Tom also presents and asserts an alternative theory, Don, and I like the theory and I understand where he's coming from, and we'll see how does the evidence play out in the Austin trial. It seemed like Kevin Austin was the mastermind of the two. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't. Okay. And I'll tell you why I say that. And there's a number of reasons. When Calvin Newnam came across, came back to cooperate, this is after I left office, he led the cops to where the guns were. 
they were up in the loft in his parents' garage. Now, Vern told me that they'd searched that property and never found anything, but they hadn't looked up there, the dumb shits. And if Austin was the perpetrator, he would have kept the guns. He would have got rid of them. Only New Nam would keep the guns. He always said, I got an ace in the hole. I'm keeping an ace in the hole. Well, that's what it was, that's, is where yeah. the guns were. Wow. Next thing, they were murdered in exactly the same way. They both had a coup de grace bullet wound right behind the ear, either contact or close contact wound, where the gun you know, was right up against it. Mm-hmm. And they both had their throats uh, slit left to right. Those, that's a signature crime. Sure. Not only are they done exactly the same, but they're unique. I used to always say, hell, I could sit in the missile launch tube and push the button launch and not really blink an eye about it. I could slam a 155 round into a, a howitzer and fire it and not think much of it. I could probably even line somebody up in my sights and fire and not think much about it. But they wasted their time giving me a bayonet or a knife. <laughs> there was just no way I could <laughs> put hands on like that. Sure. And most people can't, even murderers can't necessarily touch their victims. And that's why that's such a signature. And the other thing is, Kelvin said after the murders, he wanted Kevin, this gets confusing, Kelvin and Kevin. Mm-hmm. Kelvin wanted Kevin to stay with him that night. We got to stick together. We got to stick together. But Kevin would have nothing to do with it. He got away from him as fast as he could. Like I said, we could put them together before and after, but not during, except with Kelvin's deal. Well, that's what Kelvin wants to keep there because he wants to keep an eye on him. He wants to keep an eye on him. So there's no doubt in my mind that this was a burglary gone bad, that Kevin Austin had no idea there's going to be a killing. Um, Kelvin also said that when they pulled up to the garage, He was surprised when Kevin reached under the passenger seat of Kelvin's car and pulled out these two guns. And gee, isn't that funny that Kevin Austin would have two guns in Kelvin's car? And then Kelvin keeps them. Obviously, Kelvin was the guy that pushed this. He was the one that pushed it. So, assessing this scenario, Austin is... Is walking away from the murder charges and is offered what sounds to me like Don. He's offered one hell of a smoking deal. I think that's putting it mildly. From Tom Slorby, mm-hmm. big time. To so that we have it correct here, Slorby's offering him. Okay, you you don't have to do anything for the murders. I'll give give me ten years. Let me say that you were there. Tell me, I'll give you a, a, a really terrible, like a felonious burglary charge, right. for ten years. Right now, Slorby has no idea of knowing if. Of course, Austin's lawyers ever passed that deal along to him. By by the rule of law, you'd think that they did. I think it's it's required by the so. it's required by the code, as I understand it. Uh, but he didn't take it, and and that really kind of shocking. So Austin is eventually he he was released from the pen for his forgery charges, um, and Tom Slorby. As an aside, just for the record, we we don't have we won't have this part of we have this we won't. You guys aren't going to hear this part of the interview, but Tom Slurby actually shared with us as well that Kevin Austin's lawyers were both eventually disbarred. Right. I mean, so you really have to question. You do. Or at least raise the questions of those things, right? I, 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 I do. I do really think so. Now, although Kevin Austin was walking around now as a free man, the case against him was still open and investigators were not giving up. While Kevin Austin was in prison... He made quite a few quote-unquote friends. One of them was a man by the name of Werner Kunkel. Kunkel would later be convicted as a murderer in the 90s. He's not a murderer yet, uh, mind you, at this part of the story. Eventually, after getting out of the pen, Kevin Austin began dating none other than Kunkel's ex, whom he shares two children with. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Now, after nearly seven years of investigations and interviews with countless witnesses, prosecutors felt strongly enough to arrest Kevin Austin and charge him for the Abernathy murders. 
So we're also, I mean, we're also looking at a change in prosecutors as well, because Tom Sorby didn't win his, his bid for state's attorney. So that had moved on to the next state's attorney. And I mean, so you're looking at a couple sets of eyes, you know, I mean, obviously this was huge. So people were looking on, you know, multiple eyeballs were on this case. Multiple, multiple eyeballs. And Kevin Austin, having turned down the deal, I, I must disbelieve he's getting away free because he, he, I mean, he, he works and he says, well, I, I've changed my life. I'm, I'm, I've walked away from this criminal world. He, he had this girlfriend, of course, his ex-inmate, his ex, his ex-inmate buddies, old lady and her kids. He's hanging out. He's, he's, he's working. He's going about his life for seven, seven years. No justice is served in this case. But he had to have known. I wonder what that must have felt like to know this is creeping upon you. Like the, it, it, oh, it is sure. behind you. Yeah. Well, and and Tom said you, you can't. You can't. You could not have ever rested an easy night during that time period. If you're if you're Kevin no, Austin, I don't I, think. I, wouldn't I don't think. have. I, I, yeah. I, but Tom also said it best was um, his freedom was only going to last as long as Calvin, you know, kept quiet. Yep. So the, prost- the the prosecution would include key testimonies from numerous witnesses, experts, and even Calvin Noonan. None other than Calvin Noonan, who of course had, uh, as, as Tom puts it, had turned against the prosecution in the original trial. He finally agrees in 1992 to testify against Kevin Austin. Now, when when Kevin Austin was charged with murder at this point, he's arrested. He pleads not guilty. Mm -hmm. He he is maintaining his innocence all the way. But they they end up getting quite. They've got quite a bit against him, and that's that's what we're going to go through today. And now, on top of on top of numerous witness testimonies. Uh, a number of ind- a number of independent witnesses would place Kevin Austin with Calvin Noonan at the Royal Fork in the minutes prior to the murders. They also had uh, Sheriff Vernerk did a run through simulation of the event, essentially dri- uh, driving from the restaurant to the Abernathy Farm and then the Thunderbird Motel to establish a timing. And a couple of uh, a couple other key aspects, and this is where things get a little contrary to Mr. Slorby's theory. And, and, and I appreciate having it a theory and I'm sure he, he's seen it a lot. Um, and as he even said, each of them kind of had this, right, each of them right. had their ideas and that, that's going to happen in this case. And now, ultimately only, you prosecute based on the evidence. Well, right. And we're only looking really at, you know, the, the documents that we have. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, it's, the what, theories are fun, you know, and I think so, of course they are. you know, we as listeners and readers, we get to make our own judgment really. And that's that's the cool part. In, in, indeed, indeed, we do. So we want to walk through some of these particular, uh, very very areas of importance because you've got the murder weapons. Well, where did the murder weapons go- come from? And you sort of have this idea, perhaps, who's who was behind these murders. We even wondered ourselves in researching the case, Don. It felt like one of these two had to be the mastermind. We, have to be. We, yeah. we, we did not potentially believe it to be Noonan. Now, as, as we researched the case, uh, it, it really kind of, it, it looks like in fact, a lot of the witnesses can co- corroborate that, sure. that feeling that we got. Uh, one of them is one, one such witness is Curtis Lund. Cur- Curtis testified in the case. He is somebody with special needs. This was one of Kevin's quote unquote close friends, this special needs individual who associated with Kevin Austin. It was from Curtis Lund's father's house where Kevin Austin actually stole the murder weapons. It matched the serial numbers. They matched the ballistics to the serial number. They confirmed these weapons were stole from the Lund residence. And it was believed due to his Kevin Austin's association with the son that he is the one who took them. And it was, it, it was Kevin Austin's wife at the time who admitted to helping him steal them. So they, not, they, they have a witness saying Austin stole these. It all lines up. And additional note of importance, Kevin Austin had previously asked Mr. Lund if he was willing to kill somebody. Fortunately, Mr. Lund declined. I feel like that's going to come back on you. Yeah. Hey, do you want to... I was thinking, should we we just kill somebody? No, thank you. 
Are you, no. But are you sure we might get money? Um, no, thank you. Riches? No, no. No? No, thank you. Yeah, but she got guns. No, here, here are the guns. No. Still no thank you, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, out. Another... Uh, another indiv- another individual who testified in the case is Luther Hoffner. Uh, Mr. Hoffner was again friend was was a, a friend and associate of, of of Kevin Austin, and he said on numerous occasions Kevin Austin had said he knew an old couple that lived out by his parents' place, who quote would would give you anything if you put a gun to their head. He didn't mention any names to Hoffner. But he did ask Hoffner several times, do you want to come along with me and rob some people? It'll be easy. We'll just show them the gun. They'll give us anything. Mr. Hoffner declined. Again, nicely done. Good Night, job. Thank you. Good right. Job. I hope you're, I hope you're living a good life. Yep. Uh, she, Sheila Hilliard would also testify. And she was an old friend of Kevin Austin's. And he, describing a situation... That she, where she was hanging out with Kevin Austin one time, said he, he, to, he was telling her a story how he was going to rob a house. And when he did it, he would take a knife from within the home and he would use it to slice somebody's throat or a part of their body to let them know he meant business. Okay, I have some questions. If, okay, I've got to, this, this is a lot. So is Kevin Austin that stupid? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe points. Maybe points to yes. Maybe it, it, it does or, seem or, to Yes, he he was willing to kill somebody and had clearly talked about it and had been trying. Now, he he only wanted to recruit the one guy for robbery. The other guy, I think, he wanted perhaps he was the, maybe escalating the the Curtis Lund guy who has special needs. You figure you bring that guy with on a murder and maybe you can pin him on pin it all on him because he's you know less than I I don't know I, I, like no, if you're a manipulative I, no, murderer and I wouldn't even I, I don't know that I would that's even pure go speculation there. no it is yeah I mean I, I don't even know that I would go there I think you just want is he just wanting someone um who he can mastermind even so but sure but surely he can't be that stupid that he's he, going to talk he had, about back this in stuff. 82 that was this was an 82, in 82 so she was I, as they're building this case obviously the extent the umbrella of people they continue to get access sure. to to ask questions about to 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 build this case it, it probably went further than than what it did in that initial year oh, you absolutely. start to go you're going deep you don't want to let this case right. go you know it's sitting there you have every reason to believe Kevin Austin was a a part of it Absolutely. I think, I think what I'm, what I'm, what makes me question this stuff and, and not that, trust me, I'm not, I'm not buddies with Kevin Austin by any means. I'm just trying to raise those fun little questions, right? Uh, so if Kevin is going to take a knife from the place and unfortunately use it, he's talking about that in 82. Yeah. What else has this guy done? Like, I mean, you know, was he escalating? What was, what was, what was going on in his, in his mind or whatever i mean from from having read a lot of this uh, i tell you life wasn't great for him he's staying in a in a pay weekly motel that he can't even afford sure he's only got a handful of pairs of clothes his girlfriend will will kind of make him wash his clothes i mean there's a note in there he literally has like a couple of outfits sure so just think things are probably not very great in in his life so a number of these witnesses come forward another another one of course is Dwayne Lund that's the father to Curtis Lund who confirms yes these are my guns and and it was in fact those were identified as the murder weapons and it was Kevin Austin who stole them from the house a brown handled revolver and a pearl and what what helped corrob- again another thing that helped corroborate that story, uh, a man by the name of Mike Egerbrotten testified that Austin had told him he stole those two guns from an individual named Curtis. So all these things are just putting these guns and here's how you got them and here's where. Uh, again, a number of independent witnesses would testify to the fact that they saw Kevin Austin at the Royal Fork and he was hanging out with Calvin Noonan. His his girlfriend said, yeah, I came to the hotel, but it was probably about 9.30. Yeah, his clothes were dirty and smelly and I took them and I washed him. Did you wash them because they looked like they had been murdered in? Well, no, they just looked dirty. You know, They asked that question. Well, did it look like he had murdered somebody in those clothes dude he was always dirty i couldn't really tell and there was no obvious you know there was no i don't know i i think were i think just a better question would have been were they bloody i I mean don't you know (laughs) i think it's as simple as that was there was there any blood found on that because of you know the the 
brutal crime scene that we that you described in, in episode four. So, but nothing was found on his clothes. Speaking, so speaking of the brutal crime scene, uh, another couple of individuals who, and, and again, folks, there's more than 40 witnesses that are called through this case. And we're, we're just kind of highlighting a handful of, of the specific ones who I've, I felt like had the kind of the greatest impact of the story and to the way that things played out. But another one of these witnesses was uh, one of Kevin Austin's quote-unquote buddies from the state pen. And this man would, would claim that Kevin Austin told him he was on LSD when he did the murders. And he got extremely excited by the splattering of the blood. Ugh. It's a horrific detail. It is horrific. I, that's... Uh... That's not and, something a person should be excited by. And there's a there's a there's a lot of testimony throughout this whole story. There, these guys did these guys did do drugs. They did they did party. Um, not that that's indicative of somebody who's going to commit murder, but it's it's not out of the realm of possibility that he was in fact um, doing drugs or on LSD when he committed these murders. Which well, I, I can't imagine doing something like that um, in that state of mind. It's not something that you're encouraged to do under that particular substance. Sure. Yeah. It's not the way that it's not the way it's, it's scientifically des designed with, to work, interact with your brain at all. But that was, that was there. That was part of the testimony that would work of course against Kevin Austin. Um, another one. And this one is key. Remember our boy Werner Kunkel. Oh yes. Who can forget that name? Who can forget that name? Well, Werner Kunkel, learned about the Abernathy murders from Kevin Austin while the two were together in prison. Now, when Kevin Austin was free, and I'm guessing Austin was starting to feel the pressure, was probably starting to, 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 to wonder and think back to himself, who is everybody I've ever told this to? Well, and well, Werner's or, one of them. Oh. Or, is he thinking, or is he thinking, nah, snitches get stitches, nobody's rolling on me. Maybe it's both. Shit, you, yeah. when, you, when your mind is working through all the potential scenarios, it, it probably both of them probably crossed his mind. Sure, yep. for for sure. But he's dating Werner's ex, and he's around Werner's kids all, all the, the time. time. And now well, imagine this that's man piss that you off. imagine that you know this man who is a murderer is sleeping with your your old your old lady. Your old hanging old lady. out. Yeah. Hey. Well, to him, to, to him, it probably still felt like it was his. No, like she sure. was his. I'm sure. No. And you're hanging out with the kids now. Werner would send a letter to Sheriff Vern Irk, and he claims that he was very afraid Kevin Austin was going to hurt his children, and that he knew what Kevin Austin had done. And this would eventually lead to Werner Kunkel wearing a wire and having a long hangout and talk with Kevin Austin and getting him to make comments just regarding the murders sure. and just open up. So all of, all of this is building over time while Kevin Austin is for the most part free. And eventually... As we said, Calvin Noonan, also, who is serving time for these very same murders, reaches out to Vernerk and says, I'm willing to testify against Austin, and I will show you where the murder weapons are, which have never been found. To this point, they still had never found them. Remember, they had searched the ditches, and they dug up his yard, and they tore apart his furnace. They looked everywhere. They, they looked, had, Don, what do you, do you, they looked everywhere for those. Well, clearly they didn't. <laughs> oh. Clearly they oh. didn't. I oh, mean, was there, was there a spot? I feel like there may have been a spot because otherwise they probably would have found them and this would have changed the course. I, I, I mean, it would have, it would have had a significant outcome on the crime had they, I think, had they found those, but. Yeah. Slor Slorby seemed to feel that regardless of whether or not Noonan was going to testifying this one they had enough to get him but ultimately and and i think noonan was using things to his advantage right noonan noonan got a stiffer sentence when he refused to testify against austin back in the day 
now if you can if you're Noonham and you're in jail and you catch wind of the fact that well Kevin Austin they've got him it doesn't matter and now suddenly your value is potentially zero and you're like holy shit I've I got a stiffer sentence because I refuse to testify well I, be, I better jump on the bandwagon I better testify now and maybe I'll get a better sentence because in fact as a result of Noonham's decision to testify against Austin Noonham's sentence was amended to two concurrent terms of 50 years each. Which With means... time earned for good behavior, his sentence was considered complete after 33 years of incarceration. And folks, I'm here to tell you, Mr. Calvin Noonan is walking today as a free man. Mm-hmm. Based on the fact that he did choose eventually to testify in this trial. But I think, John, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I think that his decision to testify against Austin probably even ran a little bit deeper. I, it would, I would like to think, not I would like to think, but I, I kind of think that it maybe was a, a bit of both. And there's no way that that son of a gun is not going to get a stiff sentence too. So I'm going to make it stick. I'm going to give what's coming to him because he had how many years out. You know, you've got to think that there's maybe a little uh, personal to it, maybe? Yes, I, I, I do. But he could have done that at, at any time. Now, and, something, and you're, you're talking six, six years. I guarantee, I, I, I believe, a rumor was planted and, and Austin... Uh, and Noonan, excuse me, Calvin Noonan for sure caught wind that they were on the brink of, of, of prosecuting him. And again, if he gets prosecuted without your testimony, then your testimony has no value anymore. Well, and, and he you, saw a value sure. to get out of jail sooner. Right. But what, why, what was going on in his brain? Like, this is where I would love to spend, you know, hours, um, you know, digging through all of that stuff and that behavior stuff, because what, what in his brain you know, then switched. So that would be my guess. I would assume or presume that something happened that we don't know about. Something happened in those six years that we don't know about. Oh, a lot did for you know, sure. Well, without, without question. Yeah. But that is going to make somebody who just had completely shut off law enforcement and had shut off the, the, even the idea of testifying. So speak, speaking of behaviors and, we mentioned, of course, experts oftentimes are involved in these cases. When they, uh, Kevin Austin still proclaimed himself not guilty, and they wanted to, and, and, and there was plenty that the defense had, um, because Noonan's testimony changed a few times, his story changed a few times. You're dealing with, with eyewitnesses who, witnesses who many, of, many of whom have some sort of advantage to gain by testifying. Sure. There's all these things that the defense can do to build this case, to say the evidence was manipulated. And or, this, even, this, or even just say that, that it, no, there's he, a lot. He, Noonan acted alone. There's no way Austin right. was a part of it. Uh, because they didn't, they until they finally got the murder weapons, they didn't have any physical evidence. So the, the, look, there's, the, the defense felt like they had plenty to work with. One of the experts who was brought in, Don, was none other than John Douglas. And as soon as you say his name, my inner geek just passes out. Yes. I, it just. So John Douglas, for those of you who um, maybe listen to other crime podcasts, watch true crime, anything, uh, or even are just a fan of the fictional show Mindhunter, which is, you know, supposedly loosely based upon uh, John Douglas. But John Douglas was a pioneer in profiling, what we now know as profiling today. So he was a, um, he was a, he was an agent with the FBI. So he's actually, and at the time of the, the case, was the unit chief for the National Center for Analysis of Violent Crimes in Quantico, Virginia. He pioneered criminal psychology. This is his thing, yeah. Completely. He's, um, he's written two award-winning books um, at the time of the, the testimony. In 1988, he released Sexual Homicide Patterns and Motives. In 1992, he released a book I cannot wait to get my hands on, A Crime Classification Manual, and, which is basically, it, it looks at a, a crime and, and, and you know... It, using all of these tools and everything, they, they put motive on, on cases and, and crimes and um, can determine so much. So that, that book goes into that detail of, of what they do. I mean, it's, wow. As soon as I saw his name in the, in the court documents, I, I may have 
may have geeked out just a little bit. Um, well, I, we so we have the testimony from John Douglas who appeared for this case, and and Don is going to read uh, some of those those quotes. We're pretty excited to share this with you guys. There are thirty seven pages of testimony. I as much as I would really love to read every single word. You're welcome. I am not. Um, but so uh, so anyway. Uh, so the case, the case information was originally sent to the FBI um, through the local Minot FBI office on April 17th, 1985. So at this point, we're dealing with, you know, uh, a few years. It's been there a while. Mm-hmm. So reading the testimony, there is a lot of back and forth, um, you know, because still this is... This is still kind of hocus pocus stuff, right? It's, it's 93. It's, it's new. Yeah, it's, it's newer. Newish. Yeah, it's newer. Um, especially in our area. You yeah. know, they probably, like, what is that mumbo jumbo? But uh, clearly. That's it's, not, you can't use that in court. <laughs> right. Which which is exactly what it, yeah. the other, which Austin's attorney tried to say, that it was, you know, it's not, it's not evidence. Well, nobody's saying that it's evidence. And, you know, the judge even says. It's an expert witness. It's an expert yep. witness giving their uh, opinion on things. And so they hammer it out. So um, John Douglas goes into great detail as to how the department comes to the conclusion of motive and, and the number of people committing the said crime. So the state's attorney or the assistant state's attorney at the time actually is the one in uh, doing the examination um, on the um, witness stand. And he says, uh, asks him a question, basically asking what those factors are. So he says, and this is John Douglas' answer, and I'm going to read this word for word because yeah, this, this quote, is, is Doug, super cool. Yeah. Okay, the classification would be primary motive was that, that it was robbery, homicide being secondary. After reviewing the crime scene, what you find was that there was an effort, feeble as it may be, to look for property belonging to the victims. You have a search within the kitchen. You have the refrigerator freezer door, which is partially open. And we have seen in research that we have done there as well, where searches have been conducted in crimes against the elderly, where they have been known to keep money in the freezer portion. And plus any movie would say that too. But uh, We see a search within the hallway through different cabinets in the desk, rifling through looking for what we believe is money. We see in the kitchen area, there's a dining room chest. An effort is made to knock dishes off, continuing the search. One of the key factors in that kitchen area alone is the contents of a purse of Mrs. Abernathy's purse, which was dumped on the table. We were told later on that something may have been missing, but the analysis that we did at the time was that the subject was looking for monies. I think it was very critical in the analysis of that, that it is to note that there was blood found on top of the papers. There would, there would be evidence that the subjects primarily, or this would be indicative, sorry, that the subjects primarily and initially were looking for money. And secondary to the fact, once they found the money or the money was not enough, we then had the killing of the victims, which would kind of lean robbery, kind of, you know, rob, to what rob, we're saying. Robbery gone wrong. Yep. So back to quote. Yep. And so what you have is a transportation of blood from the Abernathy's. And I was told it was Mr. Abernathy's blood that was found on top of those papers. So they're clearly looking for stuff. And, and I apologize if it sounds a little jumble, jumbled. We're actually reading from the court testimony from the court recorder. So this is from John. Yeah. yeah this is from Douglas himself. So without going through the crime scene again, um, for the listeners, it, Douglas testifies, uh, you know, that Charlie was shot in the head. Um, execution style and Cora was uh, was shot from the the front from an intermediate distance so he continues to say within the household you have two scenes and later on you have another scene which would be the exit from the residence so two scenes clearly inside the confines of the home you have Mr. Abernathy you will find him he has been shot at extremely close range just around to the left walking down the corridor you have Mrs. Abernathy who is basically immobile she's in bed she will be fought, shot five times. One of the rounds will come from the same weapon that was used to kill her husband. The other four rounds will come from a secondary weapon. Then what we have after the fact is we have the introduction of a knife. And we have seen this in many, many cases involving multiple offenders because when looking at the wounds, we see the, see the wounds are not. They are severe, but not one of the very deep penetrative type of wounds. We have seen this in cases where the subject wants to get the involvement other, of other accomplices so that this equal sharing so that there is equal sharing in the responsibility. The 50-50 murders. The 50-50. So we have, we do have a relatively deep wound on Mr. Abernathy, which does not cut the carotid arteries, and we have a lesser superficial wound on the neck of Mrs. Abernathy. 
So what you're looking at here is multiple weapons used to two different type used in two different types of killings, two different victims being in separate parts of the house. That would begin in our analysis to believe that more than one person is involved. We cannot say that there were three people involved and we know that there were more than one person involved. So that is the information that we provided to the police. So again, um, it's it, it goes into it goes into great detail, and I, I, my my inner geek just completes completely passes out. This is a, 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 a testimony and analysis from the best of the best, and it, the it, person it's... who pioneered this entire thing. So I'm going to continue on here because it goes into just a little more as to to proving that um, you know the, I don't want to use it as evidence because they strictly said it was not evidence, but it's showing that that there was more. Um, it's expert testimony. Yep. We'll just stick with that. Yeah. <laughs> so later on, this is quote again, later on, as a matter of fact, as far as yesterday, when I was taken to the scene, I was brought to the area where they found evidence that was removed from the household. And that evidence was a big lighter. We had a knife and we had a towel. I think what was very interesting to me in the evaluation was driving along this dirt road that would probably fit one and a half cars at the most. And that these items were found on the right side of the road, the right side of the road. We're talking about on a wintry night, it's cold. And if it was one subject, it would have been very easy for that subject to roll down his window on the left and discharge it just by pulling over just a little bit on the left side. But all of these items are found along the right side of the road. That taken separately would not give you any conclusion that it was two people. But taking that information as well as the other information within the household, we have to say that there were multiple offenders involved. And yeah. this uh, again, this is important to me because you need to be able to show, show there were two people here. You've got Kevin Austin again, who who goes into this trial saying he's not guilty. He, and that's and basically that he wasn't there is, is right. kind of what I'm gathering. Yes, he had, he had this loose, this really loose alibi. Essentially, there there was a one hour window of time where they couldn't say where he was. Right, because so, he's at Royal Fork. He's eating. Hanging out, having a good time, getting double pancakes, uh, plotting this 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 robbery. You had pancakes at Royal Fork. Whatever, I don't know. Pa oh. Pancakes, chicken, whatever they had out. You know, okay. they I'm had sorry. everything you know I took at that all the time. I'm sorry. Yes. Soft serve. Probably had some soft serve. With probably her. about ten sodas. Apple crisp was my favorite. Who okay. knows if he's if he's doing LSD there? He probably actually didn't eat much at all. Well, that's true. I feel like that was a waste of his eighteen dollars then. Um, <laughs> So, because it was really expensive, remember that. But it lovely. was. It was. Okay. So, what about ballistics and weapons? And so he's able to explain that too. I mean, this guy is holy smoke. So, I mean, this this the entire de it's department. Perfect. It's it is. Perfect. It's exactly what law enforcement, what you know, the courts. I mean, all of this stuff. It, it's it's what is needed, and is so thankful that it's been developed. So he goes into that. Uh, Mr. Abernathy, Mr. Abernathy was more of an execution style. Whereas after those shots rang out, then we have the next scene in the bedroom and Mrs. Abernathy is aware of what's coming at her and the shots that are being fired there are being fired at intermediary distance. They are not at the close range. They are, they are starting off at distances and we even have a shot being missed. Then we finally have shots that are up close because we have powder residue on the head. So, you know, they go through a couple of, of, of different questions. You know, they, they talk about the brown handled weapon and then the white, the pearl handled weapon. Um, and then even go into more detail on the ballistics and the bullets. So it, he continues on. It would be difficult to believe that after Mr. Abernathy was shot two times with a brown handled revolver, now you're going to fire another round from that brown handled revolver into Mrs. Abernathy. And now the subject, that total of and now that subject, that total of three rounds is going to switch off to simulated pearl handled handgun and fire the rest of the rounds into Mrs. Abernathy. So I needed saying, <laughs> you, you, what, he, what he's saying there sim right. quite simply is that you don't have a single shooter who pulled exactly. out a different, a different weapon, weapon to and shoot a second victim. And what, it, so when we were going through this, I, yeah. I had to have Jonah um, walk me through it because it's, it's a little it's a little confusing it, at, at, at first. It is. You take a deep breath and, right. and, then, and, then, and then kind of break it down. Go back to and it, yeah. And the, the other part that that sort of confirms what Calvin Newnham had said, that he, he was very discouraged by the idea of shooting Cora Abernathy in her bed. And he sort of closed his eyes and, and emptied the, sure. the gun. Right. Uh, terrible decision. But well, he, it, 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 it would explain why they're not 
calculated shots, why one of them missed. Sure. Yep. And it does sort of, I don't want to go so far as to say it corroborates his story. But to but, a point, yeah. But to a I mean, point, it, it kind of does. The ballistics do show that that Noonan was, in my mind, uh, the, the weaker of these two individuals. Sure. Um, I, I believe that there was even a, a part of, you know, Noonan's testimony where he said he was sort of forced in there. Mm-hmm. And then he, he was forced to have put his hand on the gun and then... Austin right. kind of helped, but well, and know. then and then, but also, who pulled that last? Who who pulled the trigger on the last shot? I mean, I would I would assume again, you can't do that here because we don't we won't ever know the answer. But I would assume that it would it would have been Austin. Could could Noonan not finish the job? I mean, is it? It's just a question to be raised, really. Um, so again, you know, they go into multiple um, rounds of back and forth, and then what is brought up is what about planning an organization? If it's an organized crime scene, right, it would be it would have been planned. So he's asked about that. And John Douglas replies with organization means planning. Maybe there's an element element of criminal sophistication. It's neat. It's orderly. In this case, you have the organization of you have the weapons brought to the scene. You have subjects driving to the scene. You have weapons, their weapons, as well as the knife taken away from the scene. Very, very organized. The killing of Mr. Abernathy is very, very organized. Shot once, shot twice, over with. Then things begin to break down and you see a disorganization. You see different weapons being used now in Mrs. Abernathy's um, case in her bedroom. You see shooting at greater distances. You see a search, which we refer to as a feeble search. It's not a concentrated effort. They overlooked a safe in the bedroom. There was a roll of quarters on the dresser. There was a wallet of Mr. Abernathy's. Very, very sloppy. Very, very disorganized. So within that scene, you have organization, disorganization, and then leaving the scene, you have what we refer to as real carelessness and sloppiness on the person who is discarding some of the evidence out the window. Critical. So, so clearly something changed from, from the, 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 uh, the planning. Well, look, I, I, I do believe myself, especially after kind of here, after again, going over that Austin lost it in there. And and nobody want nobody wanted to hurt anybody, but it seems like it was forced, right? No. Yeah. So Austin's attorney during this uh, during the testimony of John Douglas, I just want to keep saying his name. It's so cool. Uh, during during that invest or during that um, testimony, Austin's attorney makes an attempt to really prove that there that it is not evidence. It's just a willy nilly opinion. You know, and, and then it has and, and it goes into a further explanation um, and, and makes him explain again what they do, why they do it. And he tries to point out that it is clearly just it's nothing. And so, again, it's still somewhat new information. If he tried to do that today, it would never fly. Sure. It would be I don't even think it would he would try. You would not be allowed to do this as right. a lawyer. In, right. in, the, in this modern era, what he did to, to Douglas here yep. to try to discredit yep. his expert opinion. Exactly. So the attorney then is, is, is still trying to, he's, yeah, he's trying to discredit him and, and starts to ask um, uh, Douglas uh, just, just dumb questions and, and really just trying to trip him up. But clearly, uh, John Douglas is no rookie and it's definitely not his first rodeo. And so he's, his answer is, um, after... He, he's implying that clearly they can't be correct. They, they, this is, this is just, um, you made this up. You're making assumptions. You, exactly. So this is, this is, uh, this is the answer that the attorney asks. Let me put it this way. You have to rely on the information provided by the investigation and the state crime labs. We're getting mixed up here. You were called in on this case in 1985 prior to the time any suspects were known and asked to do analysis of the crime scene. He answers correct. Then the police went out and they gathered up evidence and put things together. And in the police's opinion and the work that they have done, it matches your analysis, correct? So this is, this is where I, I thought it was pretty cool. He's very, very sharp. Um, he says, no, you have it in the wrong order. They conducted the investigation in February. They conducted, they did the crime scene search. They took the pictures. They completed the investigation. They had no suspects. Then they sent it back to us to look over this material and to see if we, in fact, can do an analysis. Many cases we cannot. We said we can do an analysis and then we provided them back the information. And so they're, they're going back and forth, back and forth. Um, well, and, and for, uh, of course, everybody listening to this has heard the previous episode. But sure. 
when they do that, when they make that analysis, they're not even even if these guys had a suspect list, it, it's not to be provided. It is. It is completely unbiased. It needs to be objective. Yeah. And so, um, just one more, one more back and forth because this is this is pretty interesting. So they he again explains it, and uh, and the attorney says, in other words, you're telling me that every time you have done one of these analyses, it's matched up to the crime. The answer is in crime classification, yes. And so he's um, he's going back and forth, and he says, um, John Douglas basically says that in any case that he's been involved in, they've never been wrong. Wow. So I think that wow. that says that Woo. says something. So I, and there was some confusion about the ballistics and what the attorney was trying to do is he was trying to shed light on that. So because of the information that they were given in '85, so it's now '93. The attorney is trying to be like, oh, see, you have the wrong information. You're wrong. Well, and John Douglas did not walk into his trap. And so, so the, yeah. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, fans of Midwest murder, our story does indeed end with justice. It's never a happy ending in these situations, Don, but at least we've got justice. Kevin Austin is still behind bars for, for that murder. And uh, Calvin Newham has been free for uh, about about a year now, uh, after serving 33 years. Sources for uh, both really episodes one and two, we took a little bit from the Minot Daily News, but the vast majority of this episode was built around the North Dakota uh, criminal and court records. Big thank you to Dr. Sean Antangney for her contributions as a writer and a researcher in this episode. You can find her work here on the Good Talk Network. She's a host of Myth America. Thanks again to Eric Michael Anderson with Drs. Eric and Diana Anderson for recording our intro music and to Nomad Design House for doing our badass logo. I have one more question. Final. Do you suppose um, Kevin Austin is kicking himself about not taking that deal? <sighs> Probably the last thing he thinks about every night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. We love you for it. We'll call you out in the next show. Thanks, guys. <laughs>